Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you uh, for those whom you have called uh, into the ministry, whether that's lay or ordained, but those whom you have called into fellowship with you. And we pray this morning for our theological colleges, our seminaries, uh, Lord, those who go to study in them, uh, that you would indeed uh, raise up uh, mighty messengers of your life-changing gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so we um, uh, are talking with Mark Genelette this morning. Uh, Mark is uh, an Old Testament professor of judgment uh, over at, uh, uh, at, uh, at Beeson uh, Divinity School at Samford University and uh, is, of course, uh, a member here at the Advent, and uh, he and Naomi and their brood are over here. And, um, and Mark is technically on staff as our canon theologian, and so if I ever have a, a tough nut to crack, um, I send it to him. And if it's not cracked, blame him. Uh, so that's, uh, that's his role. And we talk about a lot of stuff, and uh, we shoot articles back and forth and, and talk about the church. But um, most of y'all probably know this, too, that uh, Mark was my Greek tutor in seminary uh, in England. And I didn't learn a thing. But... Uh, <laughs> I did. I remember one time in class, I got something right. I don't remember what it was, but I, no one else had raised their hand, and I thought that it was like the easiest question. So I raised my hand, and I was right. And, it, it, you know, he became very animated like he does. And, and it was just sort of like, well, I can retire now. I'm done. <laughs> but, uh, but so I, I knew Mark here at, in, in England, and then uh, Mark uh, left there and uh, went to Beeson, where he is now. And before that, he was working on his Ph.D. at St. Andrews in Scotland. And just as a little bit of background, that's really kind of where you, you fell into Anglicanism, right? When you were up in Scotland. And, right. and, and talk to us about that. Uh, I've, I've probably shared this narrative before, um, but we, we were in the Free Church in Greenville, South Carolina. I was actually a youth director for um, five years while doing seminary, Reformed Theological Seminary. Um, I think you earn your way to heaven. If there is works righteousness, being a youth director is a way to do that. Um, and uh, I, I was probably one of the worst ever, but I did do that for a while. And, uh, but we went to um, Scotland, I think, probably on a deeper spiritual journey than we knew, um, my wife and, and me. And we decided that we were going to go not to the sort of standard Baptist church that's in town that most, I think, the evangelical students went to. We went to the Scottish Episcopal Church there. And the preaching was pretty bad, to be honest with you. Um, but uh, we met the liturgy, and we met weekly communion, and that was very formative for us. And so that drew us then down to Wycliffe, where we met you. By the way, I've got a, you've, you've seen that picture, haven't you? From holding the baby. I have a picture of Andrew dressed up like a pilgrim with a huge hat holding William when he's like six months old. Um, yeah. Yes. We go way back. A lot of, and what was the pub that we'd go to? Uh, uh, Jude the Obscure. That's right. That's a horrible name for a pub. It is a ter- it, didn't, it didn't market very well. I think we were the only people that went. Um, like it was hanging a, people. Like yeah, it was over in Old Jericho, right on Old Jericho Road. So anyway, uh, so Mark and I clearly uh, go back a little bit. But uh, the reason why we have Mark here today is... One of the things that I am convicted of right now is the need to really begin to lean into uh, theological education. One, uh, raising up people for ordained ministry, right? Because um, when's the last time somebody's ever challenged you with that? 
and so, uh, honestly, you know, one, uh, Paul Zoll and I were having a conversation recently, and we were saying, you know, the best place to find ministers are, are these guys going off working for Bain or McKinsey or Boston Consulting Group and get them to, to come serve in the church uh, instead. Uh, we'll make your wildest dreams come true. And then, um, but not just that, raising them up, but how do we, how do we train them? How do, we, how do we train them? And seminary has, uh, the whole idea of three years in a residential seminary setting is, uh, I don't want to say it's under attack. Maybe you can speak to that. Uh, is that too strong? But, uh, but the whole way of, uh, of how we form ministers for the gospel and then what kind of minister do we get after those three years? So that's just kind of a general thing. Yeah. Do you want to springboard off of any of that? Yeah, and this is somewhat fresh. We just came off of a faculty retreat. I've got a colleague here and his wife, Osvaldo Padilla. He teaches New Testament at Beeson, and his wife, Kristen, is our new marketing guru, I I guess. Um, And we just had a faculty retreat on Thursday where we discussed together for the morning and the afternoon. One of my colleagues has written a book on a period of time for Dietrich Bonhoeffer when he was running an underground seminary in the northern part of Germany and Finkenwald and other places. And those of you who have read uh, Bonhoeffer's Life Together will know that Life Together sort of emerged out of that seminary theological edu- education experience for Bonhoeffer. So this is, all this is rather fresh, actually. I mean, this is, the timing uh, is good for me to sort of try to articulate some of these things for myself. Someone was asking me on the way in, you know, we're looking forward to hearing what you have to say. And I was like, I'm looking forward to it, too. I'm not sure. <laughs> we'll, have, we'll have to hear what that sounds like. Um, but I, I do think that it's probably fair to say that residential theological education is under attack today. I think that's probably a fair statement. And that's for numerous reasons. I mean, again, I want to be very careful not to take a kind of moral high ground on other theological institutions that are going about it in a different way. I want want to be careful not to do that because there are a lot of reasons why seminaries choose to do um, non-residential approaches to theological education. And what I mean by that is the, the, the move by and large in education today toward online learning. Um, and this is, this is um, I mean, it's a tidal wave kind of movement of, of learning. Um, and this raises all kinds of challenges for us as we think about theological education. And let me, let me carve a little bit of a story out for Beeson. You interrupt me whenever you want to. No, no, no. But a little bit of a story out for Beeson um, so that you understand where we are. We're, we're a theological institution that's about 25 years old, which is rather young when you think about theological institutions. We are an interdenominational divinity school on a Baptist campus. I think we have to repeat that, you know, sort of ad nauseum because people tend to think, oh, you, you teach at a Baptist school. Technically, Beeson's not Baptist. It's interdenominational on a Baptist campus. It was the first of its kind, actually. And um, its genesis it, uh, finds its source in this uh, uh, Mr. Beeson, Ralph Waldo Beeson, who was, I think, the founder of Liberty Life Insurance or something like that, one of these big insurance companies. He had no children, and so he wanted to leave a lot of money to the university. And Tom Quartz, who was the president at the time, had a list of options for him. At the bottom was a divinity school. Quartz wasn't really interested in doing that at at Sanford University. And Mr. Beeson saw the divinity school, and he said, I want to give my money to that. I I want to start that. Um, So we were given an endowment. It was a rather large endowment for such a small school. We've been blessed in that way. In other words, Beeson Divinity School... Um, is not tuition-driven from a financial perspective. We're not driven by the tuition dollars of our students to pay the bills. So we, do, we are blessed at our school to be able to think about education in a personal way that's not driven by getting bodies in the door. 
So I want to say, not to kind of take a moral high ground for others who don't have that, many schools are driven by tuition dollars, and they've got to get students in some way so that they can pay the electric bill, and I get that. But what's happened in this move toward online learning and online education is what we might refer to as a kind of disembodied approach to pastoral formation, and that raises all kinds of problems um, because, as you know, we tell students, and as you know, I mean, ministry... Ministry is great um, sometimes, except for the people, right? And, it's like, um, and, if, and if you want to get a first taste of avoiding people, then just you know, take a class in your pajamas online while you're you know, doing whatever. Um, so I, I do think that the whole sacrificial side that comes toward going to a place, uprooting your family or, up, or going by yourself, going through a three-year program that's traditional in nature, I think a lot of that is under attack, or at least it's becoming more of a dinosaur in the current move. Um, and it raises all kinds of questions about what kind of pastors do we want to form, what kind of ministers do we want to form. On the far side of the theological education experience, what kind of people do we want ministering to us? I heard Stanley Hauerwas, I don't know, this must have been at Sanford three, four, five years ago, giving a lecture and for those of you who've ever heard of Howard he's a bit of an irascible old cuss, to be honest with you. Um, teaches ethics at Duke. And he was saying, you know, if you're going to get your body cut on by a doctor, you want to know that their credentials are pretty good. You know, they, they, they passed the MCAT. They, got, they didn't kind of just sneak down to a Mexican institution, you know, to get their doctor. You know, these people know what they're going to do when they cut your leg, on your leg. You want that. But when it comes to our souls, you know, kind of like any old slough will do. Um, and I do think that that's what we're trying to think about, or at least I'm trying to think about from the standpoint of theological education, is these are men and women who are going to be cutting on people's souls. And that, that's, a, that's a really big deal. Um, so the kind of education experience that we're hoping to shape for them, I think, demands for us to give continued critical reflection to it, given the trends of the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a statistic that I read recently was that most people studying at, a U, at U.S. seminaries right now will not be going into pulpit ministry. Hmm. And, and I mean, is that, I, I don't feel like that's the case at Beeson, but what, what's the average profile of a student at, at Beeson? That's changed. I'm, I'm, I'm starting my 11th year at Beeson. That's changed, I think. I think the average profile when I started 11 years ago was probably someone upper 20s, early 30s. And it's kind of smattering of second career people who are going through to the, the people that Zoll talked about. Um, now I think our average student is probably 24, 25, 26, that's fresh out of college, um, much like myself in Divinity School and you in mm-hmm. Divinity School. Um, and I would say, I mean, at Beeson, in our admissions committee, we, um, we really work hard to make sure that the people that we admit can articulate some sort of call to ministry. And by that we mean both an internal call, they feel called to do the work of the ministry, and an external call that their pastors or their deacon board, if they're from a Baptist church or their, or their session or their vestry, can also look at them and say, and we see that they're gifted for the ministry as well. So we're looking for internal and external call. And this is even for people who come in and say, I'm academically hardwired, I, I, I want to do a PhD, I like books, I want to teach. Um, even people like that who apply to Beeson, it, their application letter needs to articulate that calling as well in light of word ministry of some sort, um, because that's what we're about. So I would say the majority of our students do go into some 
kind of local church ministry, and that's from ch overseeing children's ministry to youth ministry to senior pastors. Just got a call from one of our graduates who graduated in May, a fellow named Daniel Hightower. He is now an associate pastor at a PCA church in Fort Payne, Alabama. He's getting ordained in November. Um, that's the normal story for a Beeson grad, and that's the story we, we really want to perpetuate. If you want to do something else, that's great. God leads you into that. That's fine. But what we're driven to do, our goal as far as a finished product of a student is someone who goes into some kind of teaching pulpit ministry or at least local church ministry of some yeah. sort. Let's talk about the finished product of, of someone graduating from seminary. And one of the you know, we, one of the things that we've developed here, which is pretty commonplace in England, not that it necessarily works, yeah. but uh, is a curacy program. And that is, I mean, there's an understanding that you, you graduate from seminary and, I mean, you're not like, you're not totally ready to go. And so it's great to be at a place where you can make some mistakes and kind of learn the ropes and really try your hand at a, a lot of different things. Uh, but in interviewing for those curacy positions, it was really bad. Uh, you know, it got to the point where we started to talk about what is our rate of remediation? Like, how bad could they be in order for us to take them in order to sort of back it up a little bit? And it was just, and it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, that they were articulating heresy or anything like that. They really couldn't articulate anything. It was like, meet Reverend Jello. I mean, it was just sort of like, oh, yeah. Um, and so, I mean, I do think that there's a difference between Beeson grads and, and, and a lot of other grads, but uh, so I'm not just propping uh, Beeson up, but what should we expect from a three-year residential student, both in the, there is a breaking down that happens in seminary, I can attest to that, uh, but um, you, you shouldn't, uh, and, um, but also academically and, and, and especially practically speaking. Um, the metaphor that I tend to use with students, and I know others of my colleagues do as well, um, you know, seminary theological education, it's, it's boot camp, it's not summer camp. And most, most of our students who come to Beeson are from the evangelical world. That means they grew up in a church that loves the Bible, or at least claims to love the Bible from Genesis to the end. They like the whole thing. Um, they, 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 they tend to be conservative in their theological outlook. Um, and so they come like that, but they also come with a kind of um, evangelical piety that's shaped by summer Christian camp experiences, right? I mean, I, I was shaped by a lot of that as well. You know, they, they're ready to throw a stick on the fire and rekindle their love for Jesus and off into the sunset kind of thing. And I love that. I mean, I'm all for it. I hope my kids get that experience someday. Um, but, but seminary or, or divinity school, that's just not it. I mean, you're, you're coming into, a very, I think, a very complicated environment with a lot of warning signs. You know, the tube in London, you know, mind the gap. I mean, we should have those kind of signs around divinity schools because there are some serious gaps that one has to think through. Um, Eugene Peterson uh, talked about his own seminary education, and he said, no one escapes seminary unscathed. I think that's true. I mean, I think you go into seminary expecting one thing, and it's a challenge to relate the heart and the mind. I mean, I think that is a deep challenge in any educational environment, but especially in a theological education environment where now 
God is not only the object of your worship, but God is now the object of your intellectual endeavors. That's dangerous business. I, I think about that from the standpoint of my own job. I mean, this is what I, I do God for a living. We do God for a living. Um, and that's a, that's a dangerous thing. So learning how to think through or at least lean against the bifurcation of the heart and the mind. You know, I can think hard for Jesus, but I'm not really necessarily going to feel for Jesus or vice versa. I'm going to feel for Jesus. I'm going to lead with my gut because I love Jesus. But all that thinking stuff, Greek verbs, Hebrew, um, learning about the Council of Nicaea in the 4th century. Uh, well, I, you know, I'm not really. You know, we, we're, we're fighting hard where we are to not allow students to, to build this sort of false dichotomy between their heart and their mind. And so there are certain things that I think a seminary or a divinity school can do well, better, really, than a local church can do. But I also believe, and I don't know if we talk about this a lot, Beeson, but I also believe there are things that a local church can do that the Divinity School really is not all that equipped to do very well. That's why I love the Curacy program. Um, I, you know, I teach Hebrew verbs and parsing, and we're gonna, I'm going to start a class on Wednesday where we're going to start working through Jonah in Hebrew. Um, what, what does it have to do with a funeral, right? Or, um, or a couple that comes in and doesn't know what to do because they're infertile. Or, I mean, the, the plethora of relational and pastoral things that come along. I mean, the Divinity School can get into some of that, but we're, you know, they, they need this sort of curiosity thing, I think. I think it's a wonderful idea. Um, so I, I think that we're really trying to work hard to create people, persons, um, who are well-rounded in both being intellectually capable when it comes to the faith gospel-driven in their approach to ministry and theology and preaching, and who also have hearts that are filled with affection and love for Jesus. I, 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 that, and that sounds so easy on paper, but when you get into the thick of Greek participles and learning dates, um, church history dates, and wrestling with whether or not John 6 talks about the Eucharist mm -hmm. or not, I mean, these are... I already answered that one. And we're clear. That's right. right. Um, but, that was very good, by the way. Thank you. Um, so I, I think that's, um, you know, that, that, that you should pray. These people that go off to divinity school from, from, from Advent and that you know, they, they really need your prayers because it's, a lot of them don't know what they're getting into. I'll say the other thing as well. A lot of times students don't realize as well coming in that there are hard, there are dragons down certain alleys in theological education. Um, I didn't know that, I mean, just think about some of the problems that the Bible creates, just reading it on its plain sense. You know, did Judas hang himself or did he fall off a cliff? I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see that that's a problem. Did Jesus die on Thursday or did he die on Friday? Um, who wrote Genesis? Who did, I mean, all the kind of complex, critical issues that one has to wrestle with faithfully as well, that can take a toll on a student who doesn't, who's never been engaged with those kinds of critical issues we try to do that in a way that's very pastorally sensitive. I will tell you, many, many seminaries do not. I will, I will say that. Many, many seminaries do not deal with the critical issues of the faith and theology and the history of the church and just the, the problems of the Bible itself. And I put problems in scare quotes. But the problems of the Bible itself, many seminaries do not handle that pastorally. There's a kind of giddy professorial deviousness, frankly, I don't know what else to describe it, that takes a kind of, jo of joy of undercutting um, naive fundamentalists who are now in their, their class. We don't do that at Visa. I would say that's one of the, we, we will address the issues, we're going to address them head on, 
Um, but we're not there to undercut you know, your belief in the Bible, and we're not there um, to encourage you to cross your fingers behind your back when you say the Apostles' Creed. I mean, we're there to actually encourage that, those aspects of the faith, but doing so in a frame of recognizing there are some critical issues that are difficult and we have to, we have to deal with them. Yeah, I mean, obviously, ordained ministry is a calling, and, you know, the, the church helps discern that. But, I mean, it's amazing how formative seminary is, and yet often seminaries kind of take a back seat in the discernment process of whether or not that individual should be ordained. And so what happens is people get sent off to seminary that, you know, the church really doesn't want to say no, and they just, you know, it's like the boss who wants to make the employee's life, they, they want to fire them, but they think, well, we'll just make their life miserable, so they leave. And so they kind of send them off to seminary and hope that they get the message, and normally they don't. Yeah, that's a great, it's, it's, that's not something that I think we have settled at Beeson. I mean, again, I'm, I'm speaking from my own experience. I had a seminary prof who regularly said in class, that he viewed his own vocational calling to protect the church from people like us. He would say that <laughs> all the time. He said, I'm here to protect the church from you all. He, I could just see him saying that again and again. Um, I think, I, and again, I, I want to be careful how I say this because I don't want to be insensitive to the reality on the ground, but there are people who go to seminary, I think, because they believe it will be a therapeutic environment for them. Mm-hmm. It's a place for healing. Um, it's not, I just don't think it is. I don't think it's a place for that kind of therapeutic mm-hmm. healing if you're looking for that kind of experience. Uh, in some sense, I think probably if you're looking for, for seminary to be therapy, it's probably going to problematize matters more than alleviate or ameliorate anything. Um, so I do think that churches who send off students need to think long and hard about this external call matter. Um, I also think that we have to think long and hard about having some of those hard conversations with people um, about whether or not they're fitted for, for ministry, and that's, that's very touchy. You know, we're, we are not, this is one of the difficulties of not being a denominationally specific school, at least my context, uh, because who do we talk to? When we were at Wycliffe Hall, which is a kind of silliness thinking back on it, but I remember writing letters to bishops, you know, about my fellowship group because they wanted to know how the ordinance were doing. I don't know if any of that ever got followed up. Did any of this stuff ever get followed up, or was that just uh, like pro forma? I think, well, I, it depends on the bishop. Uh, one of our, my fellow classmates, who you would remember, used to write things in his letters that were just really awful things like, and then I ran over the neighbor's dog, and uh, just to see if the bishop was paying attention. And, uh, and it turned out he was. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, that's a risky game to play, I guess. Um, so I, I do think that that's, you know, people come to seminary with a sense of calling, and I think it can become a crisis place for them. Um, and and we probably need to do a better job thinking about how to, how to help them discern whether or not this is the best path forward. Yeah, so a place like Beeson, if you've got a lot of people going into some, if you're going into a local parish ministry, whether you're a, a children's minister or you're a youth minister or you're, you're going to be a, a pastor, I mean, Preaching is going to be a significant component of that job, especially if you're going to be a pastor. And that is, you know, it's such a funny thing. I think that our own denominational seminaries don't do a very good job at all of, of teaching preaching. Preaching, yeah. But that being said, I mean, I went to a theological college that 
its whole thing was we are making preachers. And I had four different tutors that told me four different things about preaching. And, you know, I'd get up and I'd do something and say, now, why would you do that? And I said, well, because Alistair McGrath told me to do that. Or like, and then I'd get an Alistair and he said, who told you that? And I said, Oliver O'Donovan told me that. And so it was this kind of, so I, yeah, yeah, really. So I kind of, oh gosh. Uh, But, you know, you just kind of get in this thing and and it just kind of left me to think, well, with preaching, you've either got it or you don't. But, but is that, I mean, how do you actually, how, how do you make a preacher? Yeah. Can you? Well, I mean, that's, you know, if there's a, if there's a Beeson t-shirt that we would probably print because it gets repeated so often, Mr. Beeson, who was a lay person, but loved the church, said he wanted us to produce pastors who can preach. That was one of the things. So we get that repeated all the time. I, I, I mean, I'm not the best one to answer that question, to be honest with you. I, my colleagues, Robert Smith, who you all have heard during the Lenten series, Doug Webster, I don't know if Doug's been here before or not, mm-hmm. has he? Um, they're, they're both very different in their approach to preaching. You know, uh, Robert comes out of a kind of African-American style um, of preaching, which I think there's a lot to be learned from that from students, and students pick up on that. Uh, Doug comes from a more sort of theological... So th- there's differences. I, mean, I don't yeah. think there's a kind of um, a template of preaching or what it means to do expository preaching. Right. Um, but how do you encourage someone, you know, to be, you know, I mean... Phillips Brooks, who's kind of a mixed bag, but he, 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 I think, nailed it in saying, you know, you can't divorce your personality from your preaching. You have to be true right. to yourself and, right. and not be something that, that you're not. I mean, the congregation hearing needs to yeah. believe that you believe it, like, I mean, that you've sort right. of imbibed it. Uh, and some, I mean, Lauren calls me the weepy dean, uh, and so sometimes I get a little bit carried away. But, um, <laughs> but, uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, but how... I mean, it's, you know, even at, in traditions where preaching has kind of fallen by the wayside or is not seen as paramount, like in the Episcopal Church, let's just be honest. I mean, you know, as long as, you know, we have the Eucharist and things like that, they feel like the, the sermon is just kind of a, a sideshow. Even so, even so, you know, if you went up to a minister and said, you know, administration just isn't your gift, they would sort of say, I mean, they might be a little bit hurt by it, but, you know, they'd kind of say, well, yeah, that's kind of true. If you went up to them and said, you know, preaching is just not your gift, it was like you just pushed their grandmother down the steps. They would just be, I mean, and so even though it's not, that's like the, I mean, they are preachers, and they, deep down inside, they know it. And so how do you do that? Yeah, that's, I mean, we we do try to emphasize that aspect of, of, um, of ministry at in every area of the curriculum. And so think about this, we, we require, boy, this is not your best sort of advertising to get students in the door, but we require four semesters of Greek and four semesters of Hebrew at Beeson still. I think, I don't know if anyone else does that, frankly. I mean, that is not a build up your seminary good policy, frankly. Um, but we, we do that, and in the fourth semester of each of those, of Greek exegesis and Hebrew exegesis, there's a sermon component. So in other words, it's not simply a kind of intellectual, grammatical, philological exercise. It's also, now I want you to think about how you're going to take all that hard exegetical work that you just did, and how's it going to turn into a sermon? Mm -hmm. And then we hand it around the class and we debate each other's sermons. And I'm going to tell you what, you want to talk about something that's humbling? You've experienced this in seminary, I did as well, our students do, is when your own colleagues read or listen to one of your sermons, and then they critically analyze that sermon in front of you. What I've done quite often in my own classes, I learned this actually from um, the Center for Writing at the uh, University of Iowa. I will have my students submit a sermon or a paper, 
and we will read it as a class, and then we come together as a class, and we will critically engage their sermon or their paper, and the person who wrote it can't talk. They, they just have to listen. They can't, they, there's no rejoinders, there's no rebuttal, there's no, you didn't understand me there. It's just, you're going to sit, we're going to critically engage your work, and you're going to listen to that. That's a hard thing to do. That's how we raise our kids. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. That's right. Um, so I, I, I think that, you know, opening yourself up to that kind of criticism, but recognizing that you have to, I mean, nothing's more painful than seeing someone preach who's trying to emulate their favorite preacher. Right. I mean, that's, that's a kind of painful experience, and everyone, I think, does it at some point in time. Um, so we're trying to think through that and about how people kind of let their own personalities come into this to engage the, the text for preaching. But I would say preaching is central to what we do, but the irony is still there. Um, you can throw a rock and have seven different conversations, even at Beeson, and say, we're all committed to letting our preaching being driven by the word, right? What does that mean? Well, and you're going to get some very different mm-hmm. understandings of what that is. And I, and I like that. I mean, I think some people get nervous about that, but I like that it's a salad bar. You might not like the broccoli, but it's there. You know, it's good, good to know that it's there, mm-hmm. and, and I'm the broccoli. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, so um, I mean, when you... You know, I would, I would be interested, you know, you've worked in a denominational setting when you were at Wycliffe Hall, and, um, and you've worked in an interdenominational setting. So Beeson has Baptist, Presbyterian, um, Anglican, do you have any Methodists? Uh, African Methodists. Okay, so, so AME guys and people AME, like yeah. that. And um, looking at those two, I mean, what... I mean, I don't know if you, I mean, if you don't want to talk about this, that's fine, but so you know, where are you more, in, like, I mean, when you look at the, the, I hate to reduce this, but the quality of ordinance, who are people, are, are you, I mean, did you feel like in both places, praise the Lord, he continues to raise up laborers for the vineyard, or were there times, and what made it, you don't have to say which is which, but where you thought, oh, Lord, we don't have any laborers for the vineyard? Um, that's a tricky one there, Pearson. Um, I mean, my, my, in fairness, my year at Wycliffe Hall in Oxford was a blur. You know, I, 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 you, you will mention things about our time there that, honestly, I just can't. I, we just had our first child. We weren't sleeping. I just don't remember the year. It's a blur. Um, I will say, okay, so this is recorded, isn't it, and it's going to be out for... Um, well, don't use names unless you want to. Like institutional names? Yeah, you can do whatever you want. Okay, it's okay. Well, no one, no one in England's listening. Ah, that's right. It's true. <laughs> I, I will say, I think I, I, I was, I was surprised going to Wycliffe Hall. Um, I some because it's at Oxford and people talking really nice accents, and um, that's always persuasive. I mean, there's something about you get an American audience listening to a British or a Scottish accent, and they can be saying absolute crap. Yeah, read from the phone like, book. Oh, yeah, it's like, man, that is beautiful. It's just beautiful. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and that's fine. I mean, I, I, that's fine. Um, I, I actually found, um, I found, I find the level of discussion and engagement with both biblical, exegetical, and theological issues at Beeson actually to be a lot deeper than my experience at Wycliffe. Um, now, I only had a year there. I, I can remember, le- well, I'm, I can remember lecturing in a class and being encouraged to kind of tone it down a little bit. So I think there's just, there's, it was a very different context. I do think there were a what lot... What do you mean, do you mean tone down the academic? The academic side, side yeah. of it. And I do think that what, that there's a, that Wycliffe, if I remember correctly, there were a lot of kind of post-30-year-olds that came. Was that mm-hmm. the case when we were there? 
And I think that the, a lot of them were coming in, and I understand this. I don't. This is. I don't mean this to be pejorative necessarily, but they knew, knew they needed to get this degree to get back to do what they already knew how to yeah, do. It was a big three-year hoop to jump. Through. I got to get this, through this jump. Jump through this hoop. I really already know what I'm doing. You know, I, I know what I'm doing, um, and uh, I'll do this so I can go back and do what I already know. Um, and I get the sense that really some of the students that we have at Beeson tend to be to come in more hungry. Um, ready to kind of dive in deep, and that's in part because they know what they're signing up for. I've got to do four semesters of this and that. There, there's no, there's no, well, there's no sort of pulling the, the rug under their under their feet. Um, but but as far as ordinance that go out, and I think of some of your colleagues that we know that graduated from Wycliffe, I mean, just wonderful servants of the Lord. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's always going to be a mixed bag in every place that you go, and God raises up His people, and sometimes it's surprising. You know, I just think that's that's just the nature of how it goes. I try to tell my students at Beeson very clearly, I, I'm not thinking about, you need to know I'm not thinking about you according to your grade. I'm not. I'm, I'm not measuring you. I'm going to give you a C, all right? But I'm not measuring in your mind, oh, you're here because you're a C student. and not. I, I just want to know that you're working hard and you love to learn, and I expect all of that. I expect you to love to learn. I expect you to work hard. And I expect you to want to think about how this is going to impact your ministry in the future. And if that means that you're a B minus C plus student, God bless you as you go forth, and uh, that's fine. You know, so I, I, I think that those, those elements are certainly present. But, there, but I will say Wycliffe and Beeson were, are very different yeah. institutions. Very Would you say different. the people who excel academically, um, they get really good, I mean, is that sometimes an impediment to ministry? Um, I think it can be. You know, I, I, um, I tell the students this, and just to kind of tell them myself, because it's, it's an embarrassing story, but I was in my third year of seminary at Reformed Theological Seminary. My pastor had taken a sabbatical. This is back in Greenville, South Carolina. He asked me to do a summer preaching series while he was gone, and um, I was so excited. I mean, preaching through Colossians every Sunday. I'm 24, 5 years old. I mean, just loving it. And, and this deacon of the church came up to me afterward, and he said, we love your sermons, which you know, everybody says that. We love your sermons. And then it said, uh, I bring my Bible and my wife brings the dictionary. <laughs> and it, it wasn't a compliment, right? It wasn't a compliment. Um, and I think, I think sometimes the students that are more intellectually oriented, um, it's like what you mentioned in your sermon this morning about you know the more theological educated what's the Barnes quote yeah Kirk Barnes the more educated you get the less you think about the gospel and he's but, at Princeton yeah, yeah. I, that's wild yeah. isn't it um, so I I I, uh, I do think it can be an impediment but not necessarily so again these things don't necessarily fit into nice neat grids some of our brightest students are some of our most pastorally sensitive and 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 that's what actually gets me very excited not the student that's really intellectually gifted. Um, who comes in and says, and now I'm going to go do a PhD. I'm like, well, whatever. You know, God bless you as you go. Um, it's a student who loves the Lord, loves the church, intellectually gifted, and says, and what I want to do more than anything else is be a pastor. I'm like, that's what we're after right, right there. That's great. Um, so I, I don't think it fits into any grade. But I do think there are special challenges for those who get their fire lit by sort of pure intellectual exchange. Right. I think there's a real, you're, there's a, you know. Yeah, I mean, I just look back and how formative you know, I graduated and, and then went uh, into parish ministry. And just even that, that first year, how formative that was for me. Mm -hmm. And I do think that was a plus of Wycliffe. I remember when we uh, were learning how to do uh, communion and baptism and things like that from a practical side. You know, I, I heard of all of my 
seminary friends who went to seminary here in the States, that they would spend entire semesters and they'd get like baby dolls out and they'd be doing this and that. And our training was an hour in the chapel on one Thursday afternoon. And they just kind of went in and they kind of walked us through it. In fact, they described pouring water into the chalice as a lager top. You know, where you put lemonade in the lager beer, so the lager top, and they put it aside. And so it, it seemed a little bit irreverent, but then somebody asked, you know, but what about this and what about this and what about this? And the guy doing it said, look, we can, we can do all that if you want, but where you end up after graduating is going to determine how you do things. You know, they're going to, you know, you go in there and you try to do that, like you're gonna, you need to understand that you need to conform to them unless it's an unhealthy and unbiblical practice that, you know, don't go in there thinking that you know better. And so we're gonna allow, and in England it was curacy, so it was meant to be that way. We're gonna allow those parishes uh, to be formative. And even beyond that, you know, coming here and, and the things that we do here that are different than past experiences, uh, I don't necessarily like some of them, but at the same time, it's just sort of like, well, this is just our local practice. So, okay, well, uh, let's open it up for questions for Mark uh, about uh, how we train ministers. I don't have any questions, just a couple of quick comments. First, Mark, I appreciated your crossed fingers behind the back. That was printed in, in our national news reporting about the election of our new presiding bishop. A bishop was quoted as saying, finally we have a presiding bishop that won't cross his fingers when he says the historic creeds, which I found interesting and a, huh. an interesting commentary. And secondly, on preaching, I think that the, the plaque we have in our pulpit says it all. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. And I think that I think that Beeson does a good job of teaching gospel preaching, having heard some of your students and having been out there for a while and on various guises. But I think that's that's the core to what needs to be done is to have every to have students preach the gospel, not the latest book on the bestseller list. This is one of those classes that everyone sits back and says, nothing applied to me. Yeah. Uh, to well, so, I, I guess no, I'd no. like to address the, uh, what you spoke on earlier about being in community versus online. And I guess uh, I even see that in the Advent that uh, people aren't becoming part of the community. They're coming to church. But the whole idea of the necessity of being in community and sharing both the word with each other, but our obstacles. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things, not just why we do the Curacy program, but why we're talking about this today is that we do have a vested interest in raising up ministers for the gospel. I mean, one day um, I'll either be fired or die, uh, and maybe in reverse order. But the uh, but whatever it is, somebody is going to have to uh, to replace me, and we trust the Lord to do it. But uh, he may use us uh, to do that. And I'm not necessarily, you know, I, I have a very close friend who is maybe one of the best preachers I've ever heard in my life. And yet, he is impossible to connect with personally. He actually, I, I mean, I've heard nearly every sermon he's ever preached. And in the hundred plus sermons I've heard, I've only heard him use one personal illustration. And a lot of it is he kind of wants to protect himself and protect his family. Uh, which of course I don't care about, but they, um, but, but, and I understand that, and I know that you know with my kids there's going to come a point in time when they get to the age where I can't do that anymore. But 
it's, you know, as good as the preaching is, it's just, he just seems inaccessible as a minister. You know, it's hard to connect with him. And so you would see that, you know, people would, would come, uh, you know, to his assistants and they would see them about pastoral issues because they didn't feel like going to him was like going to Moses. And, uh, and they, they, they avoided him. So we're, we are looking at somebody who really is well-rounded and is, is yeah. personable. Yeah. I mean, extroverts, that would be good. I, mean, I tell the students that, you know, even in my Hebrew classes, so the truth of the matter is, you know, I hope you all use this stuff in 20 years, but none of you are going to necessarily cr- crash on the rocks of ministry because you forgot how to parse a hefeel verb, right? I mean, you're going to crash on some relational rock more likely than mm-hmm. anything else. So I, I think you're right. Whole, whole persons, whole, rounded people, um, that's, that's really important. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think it's also... And it's why seminary is a critical, a critical moment for someone's own coming to know themselves, is a kind of critical interaction with their own identity, saying, well, where, where's my own particular leaning? Do I, do I struggle with inter- interacting with people, or am I struggling with the academics? I mean, people have to kind of come to terms with themselves, too, in this. Okay. Uh, Mark, yes, how many students sure. have you guys got? Uh, at Beeson and second, is it all on campus, or is there any virtual learning going on uh, in the Beeson program? We probably have 160, Kristen will know this, we're on 180 um, student, 180 students. Which, which is big for a seminary. Yeah. I um, mean, there are, there are other seminaries that are... Yeah, I mean, like the Southern Seminary, the Southern Baptist Seminary is 3,000, you know. So this is, it, it's a, it's a good-sized seminary. We do no virtual learning, and I think as long as we have the leadership that we have now, hell will freeze over before that happens. <laughs> I mean, when, our dean, I don't know if you know Timothy George, but that, this guy, he, he, there's, no, there's no mold. I mean, it's, he broke it. Um, he doesn't wear a watch. I mean, he resistantly got an iPad. I don't think he would know how to check his own email if he had to. Um, so he's kind of got a Luddite side to him that would lean against that. But we also, I think, really from a philosophical standpoint, will lean against that trend because now it kind of creates our, we have our own sort of niche. We're not doing that, right? I mean, we, you can go somewhere and do that, and maybe that's what God will call you to do, but you can come to a more traditional seminary um, where you're going to go to chapel every Tuesday, and you're going to be in a mentoring group on Thursday with a faculty member, and you're going to be around people, and, and that means you're going to be exposed, and you know this from the Wycliffe time, to both the blessings and the curses of community. I mean, we can idealize Christian community, like, oh, Christian community is great, but you know, it can be great, and it can be awful, right? Um, so I think you have to sort of enter into that, and we will probably lean hard against that move toward, toward online learning. One last question. Hi, good morning. Uh, I have to declare an interest. I'm a product of hybrid learning, online and on campus. Yes. And when I think of community, you talk about Bonhoeffer, but I see the community as more the community of the church and, and that responsibility for having to raise up the person. When you talk about being on campus, uh, so I was on campus not for three straight years, but I was on campus, and, and you have the building of community there in that you attend chapel three times a day for the whatever duration you're there. And I've done it at Episcopal Seminary, and I've done it at Wesleyan Seminary. And I think somehow that that is going to be, play a large part in, in, in training pastors for the future because of just how the church is. I mean, certainly in my context, a lot of the people who are coming for, for, for training 
are not people who are just leaving school. They're not just people who are 20 or 21. These are people who are second and third career persons. But they also come bringing other gifts that they can use. And I just wonder if that's not, I, I understand your position at Beeson Hill, but I just wonder if that is not going to be almost an anachronism. Um, and I think there is a place for, for the hybrid program, making sure, of course, that there is formation built in, because I think that is crucial, not virtual all the way, because there has to be a place for that one-on-one -on -one formation. Yeah, I'll, can I, I'll, I'll respond. Yeah, I think that you're absolutely right. I mean, that, that, but the problem is that, especially with virtual learning, the default is that if you want to live in isolation, you can. Uh, the rare individual, or I, I mean, I would assume it's rare, that, that would actually engage in the level of community. And I think that's where the local church comes in, Sandra. So you were probably engaged in the life of a local church doing ministry, things like that. And um, so, and, and your life situation being different for most. But if you've got like a 22-year-old person who lives by themselves, you know, really is kind of doesn't go to church, but thinks I want to do a theological degree, that's going to be divorced from real life. I mean, it used to be that ordination in the church, you would train in the local church. It was called reading for orders. And, uh, and I think that there's a lot to be said for that, and I'm a big advocate of that, uh, coupled with the seminary experience, which is why we do the curacy. Uh, but, but any sort of education theologically divorced from a community, whether that be the local church or, yeah. or a seminary community, is, yeah. is not helpful. Yeah. I mean, I think you, I mean, I, I, I hear what you're saying, and, I, and one of the things that Anglican seminaries do a lot better in my own, to my own mind than other approaches is the centrality of chapel and worship. Um, I know at Wycliffe we worship every morning together, and I, I think that that's really important because that's a shaping, uh, that shapes the identity of both the institution and the student. I think it's very important. I, I mentioned at the beginning, and I was maybe too subtle in the way I did it, that you know, Beeson's, Beeson has fi been financially blessed, right? Um, and not everyone needs to come to our institution. And I, that's why I say I want to be very careful about taking a kind of moral high ground um, when it comes to challenging or castigating others who go a different route. I think an argument can be made for some hybrid approaches. And I, I think that's so. As a matter of fact, I'd be careful just to, to, to not... Um, to completely uh, debunk that kind of approach. I mean, you do kind of, I mean, the DMIN program is, is a hybrid. The DMIN is a kind of hybrid. People come in for two weeks and they go back. And um, So I do think that that's fair enough and people need to give some critical, some critical engagement to that. And the other thing I'd say, and I agree with you on this, if I heard you right, I didn't quite, I don't know if I followed it closely enough, but I do think our classrooms are hampered. My classroom is hampered if I don't have second career people in there. I prefer it. Because I do think they bring some maturity, they bring some life experience, they bring questions. Is Fran in the room? Where's Fran Kay? Is she here? There, exhibit A, right? Um, you know, having Fran, Fran was in my mentoring group. For, here I am, 29 years old, and Fran's in my mentor. I'm, I'm Fran Kate's mentor. How's that for a joke, right? Um, and, and, and having someone like that who has life experience and can bring some, some wisdom to I, th I think we're, we're blessed to have that. So I, I, if that's what I heard you saying, I think you're, you're on something. All right, Mark Genelette, thanks so much. Yep. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.